Support comes from USC Online, providing exceptional online graduate programs, certificates, and upskilling for current and aspiring professionals. Explore your graduate options today with the University of Southern California at online.usc.edu. From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. Happy almost Thanksgiving, either the most fun or the most stressful holiday of the year, depending upon who you are. It's become an annual tradition to invite a friend to co-pilot this episode. And this year, I'm thrilled to have cookbook author and fellow Angelino, Nick Sharma, join me in the studio here at KCRW. Hi, Nick. Hi, Evan. Thanks for having me here today. I am so, so excited to be here, and I've been counting the days. We're really thrilled to have you. Nick is the author of three cookbooks, Season, The Flavor Equation, and his brand new book, Veg Table, which we will hear more about later in the show. And Nick, for our listeners who are meeting you for the first time today, tell us a bit about your background and how you came to be doing food writing and food development. You were born in Bombay. What brought you to the States? Education. (laughs) So I was living in Bombay where I grew up and I was studying biochemistry at the time. And I thought I would become a very good molecular geneticist. So I got into a program in Cincinnati and I moved there for graduate school. And that was my entry into America. Oh, I love that. So you didn't come with parents. You didn't come early in your life. You came as a full-fledged adult. I came at the age of 18, if I remember correctly. I'm much older now, so it's hard to remember time. It passes you by quickly. But yeah, I think I came when I was 18. Two pieces of luggage, a pressure cooker, and a knife and clothes, obviously. So you made this huge change, moved to the States to be part of this graduate program, you definitely took some sort of, you veered off course at some point. Tell us a little bit about how that happened. I still missed cooking because that was something that I grew up doing. My mother hates being in the kitchen. And as a result, and for the desire to overcompensate, I became a cook. So (laughs) I used to cook when my mother left me alone, which was probably illegal to leave kids at home. But I guess in India, no one really cares. So I used to be left home alone on Thursdays. I used to go through her cookbooks, her magazine, newspaper clippings, and I learned to cook by trial and error. See, I love this. This is just like how I grew up. And then my grandmother, my mother's mother used to feel really sad for me. And when I would go over, because my mother really hates stepping into the kitchen. It's the thing that disgusts her the most. And when I would go to my grandmother's place. I'd spend time just watching her cook. She'd let me get involved, chop vegetables and stuff. So that was really, you know, fun. And neither of my parents discouraged me from cooking at home. They did discourage me from going to cooking school because my mother works in the hospitality industry. And she said, hey, you know, I don't see you having the hustle or the patience to sit in a cold room or a freezer peeling onions all day. You just don't have it in you. So I was pushed to go into science. And I came to America to study molecular genetics. From there, I went to uh, D.C. And it was in D.C. that I started my food blog, which brought me into the world of food writing. Such a lovely story. And I think a story a lot of us have. And, And your mother was right. It isn't quite as extreme as she painted it to you, but you didn't need to go to cooking school. 
So you went from food blogging to stodging at a bakery to eventually writing a column at the San Francisco Chronicle. And now you're a best-selling cookbook author and your newest book, Veg Table, comes just in time for Thanksgiving. We're going to get deep into the recipe shortly, but first, we've been asking the Good Food audience for their Thanksgiving questions. And this year especially, they seem split right down the middle where half of the people are so excited about meal planning and the other half are terrified, which I totally understand. Take this first question from Paula. She asks, how do I pull off this meal with one oven where I'm serving 25 people at my house for Thanksgiving? I'm a bit freaked out. Please help. Oh my gosh, Paula, why did you invite 25 people over? <laughs> That's the first thing I can say. Okay, what you do is divide your oven, read the recipes, and then figure out if something needs to be browned on top. You can brown things just the day before. So a lot of dishes, like if you're doing the classic sweet potato casserole with marshmallows on top, bake the sweet potato without the marshmallows. And the day you're ready to you know, serve the dish, maybe like half an hour before... Put the marshmallows on top, stick it on top on the upper shelf in your oven and you'll have it done. And then chop, prep, freeze. If things can be done way in advance, do it and freeze. There's no shame in that. And the worst case scenario, invite your guests before and have them help. So it feels like, I feel like Thanksgiving is one of those things which is supposed to be a communal meal, a family meal, friends, you know, everyone should be there. So let them help in and pitch in. There's no shame in that. Absolutely. And, you know, years and years and years and years ago, I wrote a book called Cucina Fresca, all about cooking food ahead and serving it at room temperature. (laughs) Not everything we eat has to be piping hot from the oven. And I know your turkey is going to take up a lot of real estate. So that's one reason why you might think about spatchcocking the turkey, which gives you more upper space in the oven, as Nick is talking about. And I will admit that I have used the turkey as a shelf. (laughs) (laughs) I have set things on top of the turkey to heat them up. And remember that you're not going to take the turkey out of the oven and immediately serve it. It needs to rest for a bit, bit so the moisture doesn't pour out onto your cutting board. And then you need to cut it up. And during that period of time, you can just pack your oven. Absolutely. And all those desserts and the pies and all, make them a, like a day or two a, ahead of yeah, time. Yeah, ahead. Desserts should be made ahead. Okay, let's get right into the meal. I want to bring in our first guest, Hetty Lou McKinnon. Like you, Nick, Hetty's cooking is vegetable forward. And also like you, she didn't grow up with Thanksgiving. She was born in Australia to Chinese parents and moved to the U.S. in 2015. We last had Hetty on the show to talk about her most recent cookbook, Tender Heart. Hi, Hetty. Hi, Evan. Hi, Nick. Hi, Hetty. <laughs> Okay, so I remember my first Thanksgiving very clearly because like you, it was just something that was new to me. I'm really curious to know what was yours like and what was your first impression? Okay, so I was telling someone about this yesterday. In the first two years of living in the US, we tried for the traditional Thanksgiving. So my husband got a turkey. He, you know, 
roasted it. Nobody really liked it. <laughs> and the best part of it was really the next day when I turned it into a pot pie. Um, and we, we did the whole thing. We had friends over. We laid out a table. The sides were not the traditional sides. So I did green beans. And I did Brussels sprouts because I love Brussels sprouts anyway. But we did, we've never tried the sweet potato with the marshmallows. To me, that just, that's a bridge too far. That's, that's a crime against food. I agree. Sorry, everyone. I, I, no, I agree. So I'm, I'm with you on that one, Maddie. <laughs> yeah, so we definitely tried, Nick, just for fun because we love like part of moving to a new country and I've done it a couple of times is kind of embracing the food culture and, and seeing where you land um, for your own family. Yeah, you know, Hetty, one of the central themes from this year's questions from listeners is how to make an impressive vegetable forward spread that doesn't feel like a bunch of sides. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear from both you and Nick about how you approach the idea of a Thanksgiving main dish that isn't meat of any kind. I've always looked at vegetables as mains. So the idea that they're sides and that they play a secondary part to something else, in this case a turkey most of the time, that is a foreign thought to me. So um, I always do a potato dish because potatoes are very popular in my family. And actually, incidentally, my the recipe that we've been cooking for many years for Thanksgiving is in tender heart and it's a hazelnut potato gratin. Ooh. It's actually a vegan dish. The potatoes um, uh, I slice them on my mandolin, but you don't have to use a mandolin if that scares you. So potatoes are just stacked and into whatever baking dish you have. And then I make a hazelnut cream. You can use uh, real hazelnuts and, and grind them up, or you can actually use um, hazelnut milk. But hazelnut has this incredibly earthy, sweet, intensely nutty flavor. So I'm not just using hazelnuts because I want to make it vegan. It has so much flavor. So that's one of the dishes, staple dishes for us that we always have. Um, But then it's just like introducing heartiness, you know, like the butternut squash lasagna also from Tender Heart is a fantastic way of using a very fall vegetable like squash and creating something very different and creative with it. So that dish in particular replaces the pasta with slices of roasted butternut squash. And so it's just like thinking really creatively about how to use vegetables. What about you, Nick? So I, just like you, I've never thought of vegetables as a side dish because in India you have appetizers and then you just have the main meal where a hundred things are served together at the same time. And then you finish off with dessert, maybe. So for me, vegetables have always been a part of the main course. Maybe there's meat, maybe there's not. Like you, I love sweet potatoes. It's probably the one ingredient that I really didn't get in India. And it was an American vegetable for me. And I fell in love with it. It's just so hearty, so sweet. And I'm particularly biased towards the yellow fleshed ones, the orange fleshed ones. And I do a dish that's also with hazelnuts that was in my second cookbook, The Flavor Equation, where the sweet potatoes are first steamed and then roasted. So you get better texture, better flavor. And then I put crispy hazelnuts on top, scallions, and a little bit of a sauce. That sounds so good. It is one of my favorite dishes. And it's hearty, like Hetty said. You know, vegetables can be so hearty. But if you really want to impress people, there are so many vegetables that are amazing 
standalone dishes. Like a whole cauliflower is something that's quite beautiful. And if prepared properly in my new book vegetable, I dip it into water, blanch it for a few minutes, and then roast it in the oven. And then I season it with spices and serve it with a flavored almond cream. And you also have an amazing pumpkin that is stuffed. Oh my gosh. Tell us about that one. I'm a big fan of stuffing vegetables and rolling leaves as people will find out. (laughs) But with the (laughs) pumpkin, it's such a cute little thing, right? You buy a sugar pie pumpkin, cook the pumpkin, it's hollowed inside, and then I fill it with chana masala. For people who don't know the Indian word for that, dish. Tell us what is chana masala. Chana masala is basically chickpeas and the chickpeas are cooked in a sauce that's made from onions, tomato paste, a lot of spices. And it's so easy and creamy and delicious. When you cut through that pumpkin, it's like your surprise, your Thanksgiving surprise. Everything just trickles out and falls out onto a Mm. bed of black rice, forbidden rice. So good. So delicious. Oh, my goodness. Um, Beautiful. So, Hedy, here's a listener question that I think is tailor-made for you. Um, What is a great salad to serve alongside so many rich and heavy dishes? And, And I would like to further ask, is it about the type of green or the dressing that makes it pair best with the full flavors and richness of so much of traditional Thanksgiving dinners? Great question. Um, For me, Thanksgiving salads are all about acid and texture. So I think when you're eating like very heavy, like maybe not that heavy because it's, for me, it's vegetables, but you want to cut through some of the the carbiness perhaps. I love, for example, fruit in a a salad, something like the Napa cabbage and pomelo salad in in Tender Heart. It has a coconut peanut crunch through it. So there's raw Napa cabbage, there's the fruitiness and the citrus of the the pomelo, and then there's like this coconut and peanut that's uh, spiced. So it's, um, I really love not thinking about just leaves for a salad, Um, but it's really about like thinking about other types of leaves. You know, raw cabbage is a great thing to go for. I even sometimes will do raw Brussels sprouts, just very finely shaved. It's a bit of a heartier green. Um, It adds more texture to your salads and going for a dressing that's really bright, um, quite vinegary, um, you know, citrusy, if, if you like. And I really think that the having fruit in, in salads is a really great idea for Thanksgiving. Nick, I, I also have to say that I really love your radish salad with black vinegar. I, I also think that that is just the, the type of salad that Hetty's talking about. Can you describe it for us? So it's a really, really simple salad with pepitas that are salted, toasted pumpkin seeds. They have thinly sliced radishes and use whatever radish you like. If you can find something spicier like the beautiful black radish or a daikon, you can use it in here. Now, what I love about the dressing, and that's the star of this dish, is Chinese black vinegar. It's malty, but I'm going to go a step ahead and say that it's almost magical in its aroma because it's sort of floral. I guess it is. I've never thought of that. It's so gentle. I feel it's much more gentle in aroma than malt vinegar. And it's worth it. Just like have a big bottle at home, use it all the time. And it's a really light way of creating lightness in a salad. I feel the Thanksgiving meal is so heavy 
by nature, you need acid to help lighten those flavors so you don't pass out. (laughs) (laughs) And I also have to say... um, to both of these salad ideas. It's also good to have something to chew since so much of the meal just kind of slides down. Pureed baby food. It's so true. It's so true. It's like, give me something fresh. Absolutely. Hetty, thank you so much for joining us. We've loved having you. Thanks for having me, Evan and Nick. This has been super fun. That was Hetty Lou McKinnon. She's the author of five cookbooks, including her recent release, Tender Heart. She's a frequent contributor to New York Times Cooking and Bon Appetit, and she writes a monthly newsletter, which I really like. It's called To Vegetables with Love. We've got Hetty's recipe for that hazelnut Hasselback potato gratin mm, on our website. It looks incredible. Check it out at kcrw.com slash goodfood. Coming up, turkey talk plus wine pairings for everything from candied yams to cranberry sauce. Stay with us. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Welcome back to Good Food. I'm here with Nick Sharma for our annual Thanksgiving special. Are we ready to talk turkey? Well, before we get to the turkey, let's pop a few corks. Sommelier Fahara Zamorano is here with some ideas for what to drink this Thanksgiving. Hi, Fahara. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. So I'm going to do like a lightning round. Okay. (laughs) Of menu items and ask you what you would pair if the following dishes are like our favorites on the plate. So turkey is the star, obviously. Do we use turkey to sort of set the tone for the wine portion of the meal? If you want to highlight the turkey, then sure, you can do that. There's a lot of wine choices that uh, will highlight the turkey and also play really well with the other sides, which, you know, because Thanksgiving has so much food that tends to be on the sweeter side, like yams and, you know, cranberry and things like that. Not all wines go well with both things. So finding wines that actually will pair well with both poultry and things that have some sweetness is more important than just a turkey. It's very much like family style, right? And everyone ends up with a little bit of everything on their plate. So in that sense, you can just have multiple wines on the table, I think. <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. So, so what would you what would you choose to have on the table of a fairly traditional Thanksgiving dinner? What are some wines that you would choose? So, I'd for sure have a champagne. I'd have a either a rosé champagne or a blanc de noir champagne. So, a white champagne made of red grapes that will pair well with your entire meal and also it serves as a great palate cleanser from all that rich food that we're having. The other thing that you for sure want to have is a light red because that'll go really well with the poultry. Um, Light red that has some fruit forward notes. Uh, Some examples are like gamay, for example. That's something that you see on Thanksgiving tables a lot, uh, at least 
for wine lovers, a Schiava, if you want to get a little bit more exotic. Schiava is a grape from the Alto Adige region in, um, in Italy. And it's, again, it's going to have really delicious, rich, ripe uh, red fruit notes that are going to pair really well with both the poultry and then also um, all your sides. Uh, for whites, um, not just for Thanksgiving, but for any any meals where you have a bunch of different flavors that you're that it's kind of hard to pair, um, Gruner Veltliner is a great, great option that is going to pair with most of the most difficult dishes that you have on the table, um, especially vegetables. And when it comes to dessert, do you have a favorite dessert wine and do you like serving a dessert wine at Thanksgiving? Yeah, I think dessert wines are underrated. <laughs> and one of my favorite dessert wines, which is a fortified wine that you can have for Thanksgiving is Madeira. Everything that could go wrong to a wine has intentionally been done to it. So if you don't finish it, the wine will also last you forever. I love um, that. It's for sure a, a wine that has kind of gone out of style and um, more people should drink it. So 100% go try some Madeira. Oh, I love that idea. Thank you so much, Fahara, for joining us to talk about wine. It's such an important part of the meal. Thank you for having me. And, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what anyone says as long as you're, as long as you like it and you're happy, just drink that. <laughs> I love that attitude. I love it. <laughs> that's, that's, that's true. Fahara Zamorano is a sommelier and co-founder of Nighttime Wine Bar in Koreatown. We've been discussing what to pour on Thanksgiving. Okay, Nick, now it's time. Turkey time? <laughs> yes. What's your approach to the big bird? Are you team turkey? It took a lot of convincing for me to fall in love with turkey. I like to spatchcock the turkey because it's a little faster. And I brine my turkey in yogurt or kefir just because of the lactic acid just makes it so moist and tender. And that's the best way to do it. I change the spices every year. I don't stick to the same thing. Oh, that's such a great idea. I have to do that one year. I do that with chicken all the time. It never occurred to me to do it with turkey. We recently interviewed Sola El Whaley about her new book, Start Here, and we haven't aired that interview yet. But while we were chatting, she told me that she's developed a turkey recipe so good, she's going to make it for the rest of her life. Well, I used to do a lot of elaborate things like break it down into parts and butter baste it and sear it and spatchcock. I've tried all those things, but my favorite turkey is just like a very, very simple whole roast turkey. First of all, you've got to dry brine it, which is as simple as you're just covering the whole thing in salt and letting it hang out uncovered on a rack in your fridge for 36 hours, 36 to 48 hours. Turkeys are really big, so you need a lot of time for that salt to fully penetrate. And be generous with the salt because it's going to look like a lot on the surface, but it's going to, what's going to happen is as that turkey sits in the fridge, the moisture from the turkey is going to dissolve the salt and create like a really concentrated brine on the surface that then gets sucked in. And it's going to season your meat, tenderize your meat, and the outside skin is going to get really dry so it renders well and gets really crispy. Now that's like the hardest part. Then when it's time to roast, you're going to pop it on a bed of all kinds of herbs. Use a mixture of like sage, thyme, uh, rosemary. Be really, really generous. Like you want it to look like that scene from Midsommar. The one with Florence Pugh where she's like covered in flowers. 
Um, so you're going to make a bed of all these herbs, pop the turkey on there, rub it down with, um, my preferred fat is clarified butter because you get the butter flavor, but you still get good browning. But you can use any kind of oil that you've got. Rub it down inside and out um, and then stuff the cavity with more herbs and onion and then cover the top with more herbs. You're going to go crazy with herbs. It's going gonna, it's gonna to perfume the whole thing. And then you're going to cover it in foil and you want to kind of make a tent so that the foil doesn't touch the skin because then when you remove it, it can take some of the skin with it. And then you're going to roast it at 300 degrees. And depending on how big your turkey is, this can vary. But for an 11-pound turkey, it, it took me about four hours. You're going to roast it 300 until it's about 160 degrees internal temperature. So you're going to be really gentle. And then uncover, crank the heat to 425, brush on a simple glaze. You can just use honey, or I really like to use molasses. Um, it's just to help it brown. Uh, it's not going to bring a whole bunch of flavor. Molasses will give you that really dark colored, like TV turkey. And then throw it in for like 10 minutes until it's browned. Let it rest, and it's the best turkey you've ever made, and it's so easy. Wow. It, it's so interesting. It's actually a very similar technique to the one that my mother used for a million years. Of course, more refined. Um, you're married to a chef. What's the division of labor, and, and what is the dish that you insist on taking ownership of every year? I guess I always do turkey and pie. I, I just i am very particular about it. Uh, and then with the sides, we kind of— we kind of decide on the fly, but I'm always in charge of turkey and pie, and my husband's always in charge of all the dishes. <laughs> that sounds perfect to me. <laughs> yeah. We love your new book, Start Here. Is there a dish from it you think would be stellar for the holiday? Maybe not traditional, but I think a really festive dish that might be a fun way to change up your holiday table would be to make the saffron stain tadig. It is like more advanced of a recipe, but it's so worth it. And it, what a better time of year than, than the holidays to bust out the saffron. You'll end up with like this really crispy, golden, aromatic rice that's like drenched in butter. And I think it's like the perfect side to roast turkey or ham or whatever kind of spread you're going for. Yeah, Tadik is such a huge um, favorite here in Southern California where we're so lucky to have so many great Iranian cooks. Oh, yeah, I do miss that. I grew up in L.A., and that was delicious. <laughs> well, thank, I want to thank you so much, Sola. Thank you for having me. That was Sola El Whaley talking about her version of A Perfect Turkey. Next month, we'll have Sola back to talk about her debut book, Start Here, Instructions for Becoming a Better Cook. In the meantime, check out her recipe for that saffron stain tadig. You can find it on our website at kcrw.com slash goodfood. Okay, Nick, let's take a quick break and come back in a minute to talk about my personal favorite part of the meal, the sides. We'll be right back. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. For those who are just joining us, I want to reintroduce my co-host for today's episode, Nick Sharma, author of the just-released Veg Table. And Nick, when we first invited you to join us here today, we asked who you wanted to talk to, and the first two names were Hetty, who we heard from earlier, and Maylin. Angelinos will know May from her restaurant Daybird and the sadly closed Nightshade. Nationally, she's best known for winning Top Chef season 12. 
We're excited to have you here today, May, and I have to thank you for um, agreeing to talk to us from an airport lounge um, and making time for us (laughs) and your schedule. Of course, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. May, your family had a Chinese restaurant growing up. Did your parents close for Thanksgiving and celebrate the holiday? You know what? We did in the early days, but then uh, later on when my grandparents passed, we didn't really celebrate the holidays so much anymore. So my parents just opened for service on Thanksgiving. And did you have like a little family table at the restaurant where you could like gather and where your you kids could be? Or were you just helping at the restaurant? It's actually pretty funny because... It's always the last booth closest to the kitchen would always be like the family table. A lot of Chinese restaurants, that is the truth. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I'm curious, in the years that you were celebrating the holiday, what would be on your table? There's always some sort of festive bird of some sort, whether it was turkey or duck or even a fried roasted chicken. But the years that I got to pick, I would always want to roast duck because that was always the most special and um, just really time-consuming to make because I would see my dad make go through the process of making this roast duck. And, um, you know, different sides like a fragrant sticky rice with Chinese sausage and shiitake mushrooms, a lot of different sautéed vegetables, pea tendrils, ong choy, basically all the leafy greens. May, I'd love to talk to you about sides. Do you have a riff on sweet potatoes that would work on the Thanksgiving table? Ooh, sweet potatoes, I like to do whole, like a baked potato. And then I like to crack it open in the middle, just slice it open, and add in like a spiced butter. I like to do like a, like a honey tamarind, um, something like sweet and sour to add into that. That sweet potato as well. That sounds so good. That sounds so good. Nick, you have a a riff on on sweet potatoes that's really interesting. Yeah. So I did uh, Kung Pao sweet potatoes. So it's a version of Kung Pao, but with sweet potatoes. And I find that sweet potatoes have the same meaty texture. And it goes so well with the chilies, the Szechuan peppercorns in there, that numbing sensation that happens in the heat, and peanuts. And a lot of scallions. And and just over like a bowl of plain rice, I'd be on the couch eating a big bowl of that. That sounds delicious. I, that could be my whole meal for me. <laughs> <laughs> but this, my sweet potato of choice would have to be a boniato yam. So that Japanese um, white flesh sweet potato. And describe the difference in texture and flavor of that potato to like the orange flesh that most people think about. So the orange flesh yam that you would typically find in a um, grocery store, those are actually, um, they have a lot of water content, so they're not really as starchy and dense as the boniato yam. Uh, The boniato yam is actually, um, it's more like a russet potato in texture, but a little bit more dense and rich. And that's actually the potato that I, I really like to roast. Or if you can find a Okinawan purple sweet potato, those are awesome as well. Nick, you kind of do a deep dive in your new book, Veg Table, on the differences between yams and sweet potato. Could you kind of give us just a a quick little riff on the botanical differences? So they're two different plant families. And the reason why 
in America, they're considered kind of same, they kind of are interchangeable, is because yams were originally an ingredient that the Africans had in their country. And when they were brought through slavery to America, they missed those vegetables that they were, you know, and those ingredients that they had back over there. And that's how the American sweet potato came to be. And the yellow sweet potato that May was talking about earlier, and May don't hate me for this, it's actually one of my favorite sweet potatoes. <laughs> but I do love the Japanese. I feel the Japanese do a beautiful job with their sweet potatoes too, especially the purple ones. They're so heavenly when roasted. But the Americans bred the yellow garnet sweet potato to be smoother in texture, less starchy, as May pointed out, and less fibrous when cooking. And so that became kind of the staple. And in American food writing, later on, both those names started to get interchangeable. But they're two different ingredients. They come from different plant families. The African yam, which you will see in Nigerian grocery stores in LA, it's white much more starchy, not sweet at all, and very fibrous. And you actually have a recipe for that kind of yam, sweet and sour. Yeah, it's my take on that vegetable with pineapples. So the pineapples create that sweet and sour effect in there. Of course, there's a little bit of heat in there because I love a little bit of heat. But that's another dish that you roast the, you roast the yams and then make the sauce up that's so delicious. And another dish that goes well with rice. I love rice, as you can tell. Wow, so many good ideas, you two. May, thank you so much for carving out time for us while in transit. No, thank you so much for having me. That was Chef May Lin. You may know her as winner of Top Chef Season 12 or the winner of Food Network's most recent Tournament of Champions. She's also behind the Szechuan Hot Chicken at Daybird in Silver Lake. This Wednesday is the busiest market of the year at the Santa Monica Farmer's Market. So let's check in with Jillian Ferguson to find out what chefs at the market have planned for this Thanksgiving week in Southern California. This is Jillian Ferguson with the Market Report. For many of us, this week will be the one time of the year that we gather around the table and get to eat stuffing. Here to give us a new take on this longtime Thanksgiving classic is Zach Jarrett. Zach is the chef at Bub and Grandma's, and I'd say he knows his way around a loaf of bread. Hi, Zach. Hi, how are you? I'm great. So stuffing, everyone loves it. We rarely get to eat it. What is your hot take on stuffing this year? I, I think that stuffing is really about texture overall and garnishes and you know bread especially with chicken stock you're looking for something that's absorbent and that can get crispy but sort of be soft and custardy and it's a good vehicle to deliver something else like squash or sausage or nuts and i think it sort of reflects what you ate growing up and sort of the mix of your memory of what your parents made or didn't make versus the sort of idea of how you want to do your own thing and that feels very like a bub's approach always thinking of it's a nostalgia moment through right now. Yeah. And okay, so let's talk about the texture element. How do you achieve that softness combined with the crunchy exterior? Yeah. So for me, it's uh, it's sort of looking at some of the techniques globally that do these kinds of things, like really good French toast, for example, like a long soak and then a bake, and you get this sort of crackly exterior in the custardy center. So for me, with the bread, I pre-soak bread overnight and then temper in hot stock and eggs, and then do a long, low-temperature bake. So you're achieving something that's sort of homogeneously creamy and gooey, and with things like mushrooms and kabocha squash, 
or a bit of breadcrumbs at the end, you can get like a, almost like a terrine of stuffing. I love this. And are we baking it in a loaf pan? Yeah. yeah this so, is a stuffing loaf. Yeah. So this year for Bob's, we're going to make stuffing loaves in these five by five bread pans that we bake our challah and our meatloaf in. So we, we're envisioning a big brick of griddled stuffing, sort of enrobed in gravy with a curly parsley. So awesome. Yeah. And you mentioned mushrooms, you mentioned kabocha squash. Yeah. What kind of aromatics, alliums, herbs are going to go yeah. in there? So, I mean, right now we're standing at Chainer Farm, so it's like green garlic, chipolini onions, and sage. Sort of build the base of how I think about it. Also, I'm very classically like a braised celery guy. Mm. So part of in, like building depth is braising celery in stock and sort of having these processes to get as much material, like as much flavor developed before you're baking as possible. Mm-hmm. And for that overnight soak, what are you soaking it in? Just in chicken stock. And it's just because since Bubs has so much sourdough bread and we're not using like milk breads or like white bread, just to give a little bit of um, softening ahead of time. So like a thin layer with a little bit of stock, then the next day you have like moistened bread. And you're using a sourdough? Yeah, mostly. I think I'm going to use like a giant mix of everything. Okay. I mean, we bake so much bread, it's always around. It would feel too precious to be like, oh yeah, it's just sesame. And sorry, seeded loaves, you're not, not for you this year. So it'll be a mix, a mix of everything we have. Can you maybe riff on what you might do with a leftovers from a Thanksgiving with stuffing rogue? <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, it's the size of bread. So if you cut two slices of bread and a slice of stuffing and then fill it with all your like turkey leftovers, you have a sandwich. Or I guess you could be like nasty about it and make like a... What was that KFC thing with the chicken, the double down? You could double down with two stuffing breads and fill it with whatever, whatever's left over. Or you could sort of like, I don't know, maybe like a charcuterie plate. No one sort of reimagines like the leftover cheese and such. Like a cranberry relish and little triangles of stuffing loaf. It'd be nice. I love it. All right, Zach. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Zach Jarrett, chef at Bub and Grandma's on Eagle Rock Boulevard. Starting today, you can find slices of that stuffing loaf on the menu at Bub and Grandma's. I also encourage you to try making your own this Thanksgiving. You can find Bub and Grandma's bread for sale at the Hollywood Farmer's Market on Sundays and the Culver City Farmer's Market on Tuesday. If you're looking for ingredients for your own stuffing loaf, you can head straight to Peter Shaner's stand at the Wednesday Santa Monica Farmer's Market. For over 30 years, Peter has been here every week selling everything from onions and herbs to pomegranates and citrus. Hi, Peter. Good morning. Good morning. So let's start with onions because throughout the year you have different types. Right now you have your classic yellow onion as well as the cipollini. Aside from the obvious difference, the size, what makes a cipollini onion unique? It's a milder onion, so you could count on it being mild, as opposed to the regular onion, which is sharper. And how does it grow? Does it grow just the same as a regular onion? It grows the same as a regular onion, and it just has a shorter growing period. Do you get just one crop of onions a year, or do you plant them multiple times? We plant them multiple times throughout the year. Certain onions grow at certain times of the year. So we have a late onion and then an early onion. And uh, the cipollinis we'll be planting right now and then harvest them probably about May and June. And then we have a storage they can store for a while also. So that's the advantage of onions. We could sell them green or we could let them grow to full maturity and then we could store them and sell them throughout the storage time. So I love roasted cipollini onions, but every single time that I buy them, I am reminded at what a pain they are to peel. Do you have any tips for that? Yes. Don't peel them. Oh. <laughs> the peeling is very thin and it, it, it's, it's edible. And so you don't even need to peel them. You can just brush off the 
loose skin that is there and then use all the rest. Wow, you just changed my idea of Cipollini's from the most work to the least amount of work. (laughs) So what about the other onions that you grow? You have the full-size yellow onions as well, right? What variety is that? We usually grow the candy onions or the Texas 1015s, the sweet varieties. And those we plant right now. In fact, uh, it's called 1015 because the University of Texas developed it and uh, they figured the best time to plant the seed is on October 15th. I love that story. Since you've been in the game and I know growing onions for a long time, how have you seen the different varieties evolve? I imagine you you don't grow the same ones now that you did when you started. When we started, the Maui onion was just coming out and very popular. And then we had the Texas sweet onions followed the Maui onions. And so that has been the trend. People want a nice big sweet onion. And let's shift to garlic because I know you grow that as well. What variety of garlic do you grow? We grow, it's a California white garlic. There's a California early and a California late. But the thing about our garlic is, we, right now we have it green garlic. It's the same garlic that we just pull it early. Oh. And uh, some of it we'll leave in the ground and it'll mature in, uh, again in May and June. But, but we have from now until then to pull it green and use it. The chefs and must love that. The chefs and everybody loves that because <laughs> you have to have garlic and everything. But the thing with the green garlic, it's not as pungent as the cloves yet. So you could even chop it up and put it on your salad, your green oh, salad. Wow. Oh, wow. Good idea. Okay. And finally, all the aromatics. I feel like you are the one-stop shop for Thanksgiving. Tell us what herbs you have this time of year. We have a lot of rosemary and sage right now, a little bit of lavender. And today we have a lot of lemon verbena, but that's going out quick with the cold, cold weather coming on but we'll have a lot of rosemary and sage. Perfect. All right, Peter, thank you so much. Thank you very much. That was Peter Shaner from Valley Center. You can find him every Wednesday on 2nd Street at the downtown Santa Monica Farmer's Market. For The Market Report, I'm Jillian Ferguson. Nick, let's answer one more listener question before we go to a break. Sue writes, I have a beloved family member requesting limited dairy if possible. Any ideas for mashed potatoes prepared without milk or sour cream? Absolutely. You don't need dairy to create creamy mashed potatoes. Take boiling water and olive oil and salt and pepper. And that's all you need. And the olive oil and the heat from the boiling water will help emulsify the starch and you'll get really smooth, creamy mashed potatoes. Use a ricer for smoothness. That really helps. Uh, If you don't have a ricer, take your boiled potatoes, peel them, and then pass them through a fine mesh sieve. That'll also help. Yeah, ricers are really great. They look like gigantic garlic presses. Yes, a huge blessing with potatoes. Yeah, and can you make mashed potatoes in advance? You can make mashed potatoes in advance, absolutely. What I do is I warm them with a little bit of a few tablespoons of hot water, stick them in the microwave, a couple of minutes, pull them out, and that's it. Amazing. See, really Thanksgiving is like a military operation. You just (laughs) have to really plan it out. Speaking of dairy-free, you have a recipe in your new book for a vegan creamed corn that looks so good. Oh my gosh. So I first ate cream corn at Thanksgiving many, many years ago when I lived in Ohio. And I wasn't impressed. I thought it was one of the most richest parts of the meal. So for this book, I said, I like sweet corn at Thanksgiving. It's an integral part of the menu. How do I make it vegan, 
but light and fun. Actually, vegan wasn't even on top of my dish. I just wanted it to be feeling light and fun in texture, but also bursting with flavor. And the easiest five-minute thing that I could pull off, kimchi. If you throw in some kimchi, it's already bursting with flavor. It's got sour, a little bit of heat, spiciness. So you really don't need to add any spices. Throw that in there with a little bit of coconut milk. Top, you know, chop some fresh chives, and that's it. And of course, add the sweet corn. So. With the kimchi, are you chopping it fine? Are you leaving it whole? Is it cabbage kimchi? I use cabbage kimchi. I chop it up in coarse bits. If you want, you can chop it up fine. The main thing is with the kimchi, get some of the juice out from the uh, from the can after you're done, because that's where all the flavor is. Sounds so great. And then you just saute it on top of the stove. Yeah, I add an onion, saute an onion with a little bit of olive oil. You could use any type of oil that you want. Uh, there's a little bit of garlic. And then you toss all those ingredients, bring it to a simmer, throw some chives. It's literally the easiest thing to do for Thanksgiving. And you've cut the kernels off the corn cob. Yeah, and if you don't want to do that, you can use frozen because I'm a big advocate of frozen corn. It tastes better than fresh. I love to hear that. I love to hear that. And for anyone who wants to make that vegan kimchi creamed corn this Thanksgiving, you can find the recipe on our website. Up next, dessert. We turn our attention to, of course, pie when Good Food continues. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. I'm here with Nick Sharma, author of Veg Table. And Nick, I thought we could put your science background to good use and answer some listeners' dessert questions. Every year, we get a version of the same question. In fact, this year, we got it twice. <laughs> Why does my crust look beautiful before I put it in the oven just to have it shrink? And also another question, why does the crimp never stay? That's a very, very good question. Okay, a couple of things. Make sure, because this is a flour to fat ratio question, or rather that's the answer that's hidden in here. Make sure that you're actually weighing the flour versus using cups because people and their cup measures all vary. So if your recipe says one cup is 140 grams of flour, make sure you're using that. Make sure you're using American style butter if that's what your recipe calls for versus European fat because that has more fat. And if you have too much fat, which is what's happening here, if you have too much fat as the pastry, as the dough bakes in the oven, what you'll notice is that it liquefies everything and it falls apart. So that's one problem. The other problem could be that your oven is just not hot enough. So make sure that your oven is actually really hot when your pie crust or the pie dough goes in. And then make sure it's also frozen. That's very important. You need to start with frozen pie dough for it to be nice and hold its shape when it bakes. Yeah, and I'll chime in here. For me, and this happens to me all the time, um, when I'm impatient and I don't throw my my pie in the freezer and I will take the entire like a double crust pie and before I put it in the oven, I will put it in the freezer for 15 or 20 minutes just to allow the butter to stabilize. I've also discovered that if you use a, a little bit of whole grain flour rather than all all-purpose flour, I don't know if it's the germ in there, the bran, but that will help keep the crimp. But I will also say that I'm sure the pies that you've had that slumped a little bit still tasted delicious. 
Absolutely. And there's a trick that I can share with people since you mentioned the germ, um, the wheat germ, not germ germ, the cream cheese. This is a trick that I learned from one of my favorite people, Rose Levy, and she does a cream cheese pie crust. And like the germ, the wheat germ, cream cheese also occupies pockets between the pastry and the butter. I mean, the butter and the flour. And so it doesn't let it shrink as much. So that actually helps it hold its shape really well. Oh, I love that. I love that a lot. So we have another dessert question to get to. This listener is asking, do you have a pumpkin dessert alternative to traditional pumpkin pie, which everyone in my family dislikes? (laughs) Oh, I love when people are so emotional about Thanksgiving dishes. Okay, riff on pumpkin alternatives. I have a fantastic dish for you. You don't have to make a crust. It feels like you're eating the pie filling without the crust work. So I have a recipe for a dish called pumpkin bibinka. And bibinka is a... that is a delicious recipe. Bibinka is a dish that's from Goa. It's very different from the Filipino bibinka. And it uses coconut milk, eggs, sugar, and pumpkin puree. I add a little bit of miso just to play with the flavors in there and a little bit of turmeric to brighten it up. But it's so easy. You blend it all, pour it together, bake it, chill, and serve. It has a wonderful texture too. It's custard in a more approachable form. And I'm going to say here, if your family dislikes pumpkin pie, why deal with pumpkin? Yeah, use sweet potatoes. I love sweet potatoes. I love sweet potatoes too. I always, um, for many, many years, I was doing a a sweet potato pie where I flavored it with maple syrup and I used a little bit of brown butter. And then I used um, ginger snaps as the pie crust. Yum, yum, yum. Very good. Very delicious. I want to bring Hedy Lou McKinnon back into the conversation for this last dessert question because I know she's going to have a good answer. The question comes from Aurora on Instagram. She's asking for light but delicious desserts, hard to make room for dessert when the meal is heavy and rich. That's so true. Because often, you know, you make all these pies that we used to try and make. You made, like, used to make three pies and at the end, we're like, oh, too full to eat them. So my approach is, um, well, I often will make a pavlova because a pavlova, even though it's very sweet, it's something you can prep ahead. You, I always make it the night before and leave it in the oven to cool overnight. That's, that's the old method. And you can f- top it with fruit. And that's actually my favorite part of the pavlova is topping it with whatever, you know, fresh fruit you can get. And that really f- makes a, you know, a light, slightly acidic. You can add some citrus to there. And, and I love um, a pavlova for that reason. The other um, dessert that I want to represent is um, my lazy tiramisu that is in actually in Tender Hearts in the squash chapter. It's pretty much like a regular tiramisu, but you don't, there's no eggs in it. And there's none of that whipping involved, that whipping that I seem to not enjoy. Um, So I basically just mix butternut puree and you can use the canned pumpkin puree for this. And I mix that with mascarpone and sugar and that is it. And I layer that with, um, you know, the ladies' fingers that have been dipped in a spiced coffee. It's so easy. You can make it the night before, leave it in the fridge. It's also very, very light. I love that idea of a pavlova too, because 
in the context of a Thanksgiving dinner, that jolt of sugar is such a great contrast. Mm, yes. Absolutely. You know, a really fun thing to do with the pavlova during the Thanksgiving season is to make a fruit salad. So I do an Indian fruit salad with chunk masala, a lot of lime juice, a little bit of chili peppers. But for fall and at Thanksgiving, I use guavas and persimmons mm. because those are in season. I'm not a huge fan yes. of pears. I find them a little flat. Sorry to people who love pears. Apples. Put that all together with a little bit of fresh mint. Pour that on top of the pavlova. It is heaven. Oh, that sounds so good. I back the persimmons. I usually use persimmons in a Thanksgiving pavlova. So the thing about Thanksgiving is there's always too much food. Always. Always. It's so much work. So much work and so much leftovers. So much leftovers. And I have always thought of, I, I wish there was a different word because to me, leftovers are just mise en place. And for me, they're my playground. Okay. They're where I really love to live. <laughs> How about you? I prefer leftovers the next day because I honestly believe that they taste better for some reason. I think the flavors maybe just get better. Even the turkey gets better. Do you ever turn the chopped leftover turkey into a curry? No, but what I do is I make tacos. So I do like a turkey vindaloo type thing. Ooh. And my my husband loves hot and spicy and... He loves going food and I'm, I'm half going. So we make this, I make, he doesn't make anything. Um, I do the turkey vindaloo where it's the same recipe that I use for pork or chicken, but I throw in turkey and because the turkey is already cooked and it gets a second dose of acid, it literally falls apart. So it works so well. And then we do tacos because I really don't feel like cooking the next day. Toast some tortillas up, make tacos and serve it. Does Vindaloo have vinegar in it? What are the main flavor components of a Vindaloo? The main flavor components of Vindaloo is vinegar and a lot of chilies. And the chilies don't necessarily have to be hot. I use Kashmiri chilies. Half leave the seeds in, half toss the seeds out so it's not that hot. And then you're basically making this spice paste with a lot of vinegar and a little bit of brown sugar or jaggery. Jaggery is an unrefined form of sugar that's used in Indian cooking. And... You cook that and it's usually made with pork, but I move away a little bit from tradition and I use whatever meat we have at home and cook it in there and it works so well. Oh, that sounds so good. For turkey, I have to say for leftovers, I get pretty traditional. I love a great pot pie and often I will intentionally make extra pie dough. Okay. I when love I'm that. making my pies so that um, I can just do like a cobbler style, like, you know, just on the top. And I also really love making soups. I'm getting hungry thinking about leftovers. (laughs) There are two things I haven't mentioned that I do with turkey every year with leftovers. One is that I always save a little bit for my pets because I feel they all three need to take, but I've got two cats and a dog. All of them do get a little bit of turkey without the seasoning and all of that. But the other thing I really like to do with turkey and a lot of the vegetables that are more textural is I either make pupusas Because they're really good to be, you know, with a little bit of cheese, you can really stuff them well inside pupusas or even like a paratha. Wow, I love this. So you'll take some of the vegetable sides? I take some of the vegetables as long as they're not in pureed form. 
uh, and they're still holding their texture like Brussels sprouts. Just give them a good rough chop. They're already seasoned, so you don't need to do anything else. I throw in a little bit of mozzarella or paneer and then put it between the dough and it's a lovely stuffed bread and you can do pupusas or paratas. I want to come to your house. <laughs> well, don't come this year because we're not doing Thanksgiving. Come next year. <laughs> Thank you so much, Nick. This was really fun. Thank you so much for having me here today, Evan. This has been a blast. So much fun. You can follow Nick on Instagram at a brown table. We have recipes for his masala pumpkin pots, Kung Pao sweet potatoes, and kimchi creamed corn on our site, as well as a link to his new book, Veg Table. We've also got 45, yes, 45 recipes for pies that would be great for your holiday table. 75 recipes for side dishes and 91 ideas for vegan and vegetarian Thanksgiving recipes. Find it all at kcrw.com slash good food. If you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash good food or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, Elena Shatkin, Desmond Taylor, Nick Lamponi, and Hope Brush. And special thanks to Laura Kondorajan and Gary Masiha. I'm Evan Kleiman. How do you plan on doing leftovers this year? Make grilled cheese. Put your leftover vegetables in a sandwich with whatever cheeses you've got left over from your cheese plate and grill that. Leftovers for me always consist of a breakfast congee. I like to eat them cold and just sit on the couch and watch a bunch of movies eating cold leftovers. <laughs> I support this 100%. <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. I'll be back next weekend with more good food.